in the prayer. If you don't own a Bible, there are uh, a bunch of Bibles in the back that we'd love to give you just as our gift to you. If you don't own one, have one. Uh, it's free, so that's not one you have to take in return uh, or pay for. So we'd love for you to have a Bible. Uh, if you have your fake Bible, open it up on your phone. Uh, you know that I think that's just lame and lazy, but go ahead. Uh, that's the age we live in. Uh, if you have a real Bible, you can hold, look at, open up, feel the pages, breathe, smell it, open that up. That's good stuff. You can write it in, underline it. I know you can do that on your phone. Uh, as well, but uh, if your phone breaks, you don't have it. Uh, I guess if you lose this, you won't have it either, so I'm kind of at a loss. So uh, go to Luke chapter 9. Here's what I want to do uh, first. Um, if you're just visiting, really glad that you're here with us. Um, we're just a bunch of people that love Jesus, and we love to worship Jesus by singing to Jesus, by reading the scriptures that tell us about Jesus. We believe that, that this book, that the scriptures are really the uh, what, what, what the, all the planets orbit around is Jesus. He's the hero of history. He's the hero of redemption. He's the hero of all that exists. And so everything that we preach, live, and, and teach, and understand really centers around his person and work. And so uh, he's going to be the name you hear more than any other name. Uh, it's going to be Jesus Christ and really about his person and his work. And it's great because specifically, this is what Luke is writing. Luke is a gospel writer. He was an, uh, a follower with Jesus and with uh, Paul. He's writing this account where he's actually laying before us the life and teachings of Jesus. Now, here's what you got to understand because um, I, I know sometimes I'll just assume that people understand things or know things, but um, there are four gospel accounts. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so you're going to hear kind of within us reading Luke, me mention Mark, me mention Matthew, me mention John. We're just trying to pull from all these different eyewitness accounts that were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to get the fullness of what God wanted us to say. So um, if you hear me say Mark said or Matthew said, that's not like my buddy I met for coffee. That's uh, an a, a divine inspired, divinely inspired author who is saying something from God. We're going to see that a lot this morning. We're going to pull from Matthew and, and Mark a little bit in this particular text. But um, here's what's we've, what we've been seeing is that Luke is writing to this Roman official Theophilus who uh, we think might have been skeptical of the things of Christianity. He wants to basically convince you why you can trust Jesus and his teachings and be transformed by them. So I'm going to keep saying this over and over and over and over again. We don't gather, we don't come in here just so that we can learn some stuff on our head and walk walk out and spit it back out to somebody. Okay, this is so that, that the things that we learn in our head inform our hearts and cause affections for God because of what Christ has done for us. So if we leave unchanged, then, then we might as well just close up shop, okay? Like we're wasting our time. The, the purpose of gathering and hearing and learning and growing and rooting ourselves in the truth of the scriptures that Jesus revealed to us is to be transformed by them. So um, that's what we pray for. That's what we ask God for. We say all the time that we don't need just more information. We need transformation. So uh, if God doesn't show up and act, then, then none of that matters. So in light of that, let's pray. Let's ask him. Let's seek him. Uh, let's just take a moment. I know all of us come in here with a thousand and one things pressing on our minds, anxieties, burdens, cares, people, worries, work. Uh, if, if that's not you, help me learn how you do that, how you walk in with a, with a clear head. Um, so let's just take a moment with the God of the universe and just thank him for today. Thank him that he got you out of bed today and brought you to gather with the saints. Uh, if you were pulled or dragged here by a friend, thank him that you somehow, by God's grace, showed up here. And I pray that you would see the mercy and grace and kindness of Jesus. And, and then just ask him to be kind to you this morning in illuminating your mind to divine truth that can only be seen and discerned by the Holy Spirit. Ask him to give you the grace to be obedient to what is 
said by his word. Give the humility to walk and respond. God, thank you that the next, really all of our time here, matters. God, thank you that this is not aimless and meaningless. God, would you show up in, in a kind way, however you see fit, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 9. That's where we are in Luke, uh, in the gospel according to Luke. And just to remind you, Luke 9 is really kind of the, the centerpiece for Jesus' ministry. He's been ministering for about a year and a half. He's going to continue for another year and a half. So this is going to actually be his uh, way of turning his face towards Jerusalem ultimately, where he will die and ransom and rescue those who he will call to himself. And so um, here, Luke, you'll see, he's really kind of getting personal with you. He's, he's confronting the issue of discipleship, of, of worship, of, okay, if you really say he's the Christ, if you really say he is who he claims to be, then how does that shape you? How does that form you? So we saw him make some seemingly outlandish claims of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him, and, and he's still going to heal and do miracles. He sent out the apostles to heal and, and make kind of this last blitz around Galilee uh, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And so uh, here we're going to see a section where they were in the tr- Mount of Transfiguration last week. They were up. They, they saw the glory of Christ. They saw the Old Testament saints, Moses and Elijah, discussing with Jesus about his future death, resurrection, and ascension. Just a mind-blowing picture. And remember, we said he was doing that to validate what he would do in the future. So if just quickly to understand your Bible, if you read the Old Testament, he basically, God will give near prophecies and far prophecies. So the the near ones are so that you'll trust what is future. And he knew that there were people who weren't going to be alive for his second coming. He knew that people were confused about, I mean, what does it mean you're going to die and be handed over to the religious establishment to be crucified? What does all that look like? And so he took them up to the Mount of Transfiguration. He took Peter, James, and John, the three kind of inner circle disciples, and he revealed to them a glimpse of the second coming. So as they're leaving perfection that is that, they walk back down immediately into the imperfection that is a fractured, broken world. And we're going to see that in verse 37. Look at what uh, Luke writes. He says, on the next day, this is the very next day after the transfiguration, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. This is normal in Jesus' ministry. There were always just tons of people, lots of crowds, wanting to gang around, ask Jesus for things, peddle Jesus for things, scream at Jesus for things. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Okay, so um, they're coming down the mountain after the, the, the epitome of human joys. Okay, they were, they were seeing the fringes of the glory of Christ, not fully in their glorified state because we know that God dwells in unapproachable light that would incinerate you if you were in its fullness. So they are, they are seeing all that, enjoying all that. They walk down the mountain. Here's a crowd that's just screaming at Jesus, wanting stuff from Jesus. Hey, heal this, do this, cure this. That's just, they're all about amazement. They're all about wonders. They're all about popularity because they think this could be the king that's going to overthrow Rome and kind of set up his reign and rule and reign and relieve them from oppression. As they get down there, there's one particular man that Jesus takes note of, who he hears. And and this man is kind of like in the crowd, kind of trying to make it to Jesus, and he screams out, teacher. He knew Jesus was a teacher of God. There are many other reasons I believe he was was a, a believer. 
But he, said, he says teacher. Other places he says Lord. And he's basically just appealing to God. Matthew says that he actually falls on his face, on his knees. So there's, there's humility here. There's reverence here. There's respect here. He's at his wit's end. He goes, hey, my only son has got this spirit, a demon. He's demon-possessed. Now, only sons were big time because they kind of passed on, well, let alone having a son, but only sons even bigger because that's kind of your last shot at human legacy, family heritage. And so he's going, my only son. And this, this demon, this isn't like, I think it's Mark or Matthew that says he had this demon from childhood. This is like unrelenting assault. I believe this is actually one of the most serious and most severe cases of demon possession that's recorded in our Bible. This demon will not relent, will not let up. You can read other accounts where he was throwing this boy in open fires and trying to drown him in pools. This is not like some, okay, he's, he's had a bad day and he, he's feeling a little possessed. Okay, this has been his life for probably a few years. So you bet this guy, if you're this man, you know the things you've heard about Jesus, you've seen him cast out demons. Now remember, why did they ask the disciples to cast him out? Because in the beginning of Luke chapter 9 or, or earlier, right, remember Jesus sent them out and said, hey, you can now cast and heal demons in my name. You have my rights, you have my privileges, you are going to now proclaim the kingdom of God and validate it through these healings and miracles. And so we saw this happen, and so for some reason they can't do it for this one. I mean, what's different about this one? Why can't they seem to cast out the demon from this particular boy? And understand, this must have caused unimaginable pain for this family. This guy is at wit's end. <laughs> this guy's desperate. He probably can't even believe he made it through to even get Jesus' attention. Because you bet everybody's screaming for wants from him. That's what I love about these gospels is Jesus always pays, pays attention to a particular person. Somebody always stands out, and this is over and over and over, and he had asked the disciples to deliver his son, and they couldn't, and what's the problem? Why not this time? Look at verse 41. Jesus answers, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Now, this certainly could apply to Israel to the religious establishment. They were faithless in the sense of having faithlessness and who he was as the Christ, right? They didn't believe he was the Messiah. They ultimately will go and, and kill him and reject him and have him, uh, you know, crucified. But, but really the word here is for companions. So, so Jesus is really speaking to the disciples here. He's basically given the reason that they couldn't cast out the demon, that they couldn't cure the demon. So there was, there was something about this case, this particular case that was either more serious or whatever, that, that, that weakened faith in the disciples where they thought, I don't know that I could do this one. Because Jesus already gave them full authority and full rights to cast out and heal. And he says, you're faithless. How long must I bear with you? Jesus is looking at the disciples basically saying, guys, you had all my rights. You had all my authority. You had all my privileges. Why, why don't you believe me? Why don't you believe that? What's, what's shaken you from believing what I say? My word. Nothing's changed. And that's what you're, you're seeing happen here. And he's basically just totally frustrated, exasperated by this lack of faith in the disciples. He's going, I continue to show you who I am. 
I continue to, to show you that I'm utterly trustworthy. I mean, why are you doubting that? Why are you faithless? Why are you twisting your understanding of me? Nothing's changed. I mean, how long are we going to go through this? Like, this is, this is empathy and a little bit of frustration, but he's really just, just pleading with them, going, hey, just, just look at what we've walked through, been through. Have I given you any reason to doubt, to not trust my ability, my authority, my privilege, my rights, my power? Because, listen, um, they had no reason to have a lack of faith in what Jesus kind of commissioned them to do, right? Like, he never gave them a reason to doubt that. They'd seen him cast out a legion of demons. They saw him raise the dead to life. They saw him heal the sick. They saw him bind up and give extra limbs to the lame and crippled. They saw him open the eyes of the blind and the ears to the deaf. They, they saw all of this. Like, there, there's no, you can't really let them off the hook here. Like, like there's not some hidden excuse for, well, Jesus kind of screwed up a week ago, so I don't know, maybe we, no, Jesus has, has over and over shown himself as utterly trustworthy and proven himself over and over and over and over again. And yet here, Jesus is saying, how much more do you have to see? What's there left for me to show you? And we'll see more of this in a minute, but let's keep going. We're going we're, we're gonna to sit on that, but let's, let's move forward first. Jesus basically steps into the situation with holy frustration. <laughs> he goes, bring, bring the son here, <laughs> Right? That's, that's Jesus silently saying, okay, hey, I gave you all the ability to do this, all the faith to do this, all the reasons to do this, and you can't do this, so bring him to me, I'm going to do it. Okay? Because while he was coming, the demon threw him, threw him to the ground and convulsed him. This is, this is the demon coming face to face with the very Son of God who threw him out of heaven with Satan long before. And he's seeing him. And the only thing he can do is just add pain to the child. Because he knows who the Son of God is. So it's kind of this last shot. Like, I mean, I can't really, like, do anything to Jesus. I, I, I'm fully submitted to the authority of the Son of God. So let me try to get my last shot of pain in, last shot of agony in. So he starts slamming him to the ground, convulsing him to the ground. And Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit, heals the boy, gives him back to the Father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Okay, so as the demons brought face to face with the Son of God, the disciples are probably going, see Jesus, this is a rare one. You see how serious this one is? You see how, see how intense this one is? And Jesus, I love it, Jesus so matter-of-factly <laughs> rebukes the demon, heals the boy, hands him back to his Father. And we've seen this over and over, so we don't want to take a lot of time of that. We've seen, demonstrated in Luke, the power of God, the authority of God through Jesus. And I want you to understand just briefly here, though, just him giving the son back to the father. Okay, imagine the unimaginable joy of this father to be reconciled with his son in the sense of no more suffering from this torment that's been going on forever and ever and ever. And Jesus demonstrates there's love here, there's compassion here, there's mercy here. He basically takes the hand of the son, other, other records say, and gives it to the father. You know, Jesus deeply identifies with suffering. This, this is so mind-blowingly compassionate. And, and he hands the hand of the boy to the father and basically saying, your son's healed. Enjoy the reunion. Enjoy the joy. If, if you're suffering, you're in a place of pain, you know, Jesus is extending his literal hand. God is extending his grace through the person and face of Jesus. 
to walk with you and provide mercy and compassion and love. And he, he, he demonstrates that. We've been seeing that all throughout Luke as well. Um, but the point here, the, the point is faith here. That's the issue. Now, I think we need to talk about this because just the understandings of faith is kind of all over the map everywhere. Okay, so we're not... We're not going to have a, you know, a three-hour lecture right now. I just want to just look at what the Word says, look at what we see here, to try to get our, our hands around what faith is okay, and why, this is, why we're seeing this in the text. And if you look at Matthew 17, the same account, Jesus, the disciples come up to Jesus afterwards privately. Okay, let's have a private huddle. Okay, I don't want to be embarrassed because I was, I was casting out demons. I couldn't do it for this one, so I'm a little embarrassed. So, Jesus, hey, um, why could we do it with this one? Are you holding out on us? That wasn't cool. And, and Jesus, it says his disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we cast it out? He said, because you have a little faith. <laughs> okay, but, but have a little bit more. <laughs> right? We always want Jesus to say more. No, that's the issue. You have a little faith. So I want to talk about this. Um, this week I asked a couple people, some of you guys called some other pastor friends, just, hey, what's the best definition of faith you can think of? And then I kind of took the scriptures as to what, you know, you, you always got to add the scriptures, okay? Not just what people's opinions are, but that, that helped, people I trust, people I know, and hey, what do you guys think? And it, it all kind of circled around this. I'm going to give you the, the best definition of faith, that, this is I, not the Lord, that I can, that I can give you, then, then let's go to scripture and look and see, and then let's let that roll that out on our hearts a little bit, okay, as to how we understand faith and, and understanding God's word and being obedient to that. You're going to see how this all ties together. And here's what I kind of boil it down to. Faith is Trusting, relying, putting your confidence in what God has said and forming your life around it. Okay, so, so you are totally putting your entire trust, your bank in, all your chips on what God has said. And not necessarily because he's shown something to you or proven that to you, because he's simply said it. I mean, I mean, Period. Okay, God has spoken, God has said, and you go, I am going to throw myself, I'm, I'm putting all my chips in that that's true. Even if you don't necessarily see it manifested or God does not. Because here's what, faith is not like a spiritual muscle. Faith is not something where you kind of bolster yourself up to make things happen that would not otherwise happen. Like you bring things into existence that wouldn't have been because you are somehow varsity. And I want to I look a little bit into this, right? Our faith is in what God has said, what God has revealed in his word, right? Biblical faith does not mean that by believing hard enough, you can activate something. So let's just go to Hebrews 11. Great portion of scripture, right? A lot of us know it. The hall of faith. I just want to look at a, a couple of these. If you want just to understand faith, I think this is one of the best sections of scripture to go to. Okay? Look at what it says in, in verse 1. Amazing portion of scripture. Verse 1. Faith is what? The assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. So it's to be sure of what hasn't happened and convicted of what hasn't been seen. So how can you be sure of what hasn't happened or convicted of what, what isn't seen? Well, God has to say it. If God has said it, then you can be convinced of that even if it hasn't happened yet or even you, if you haven't visibly seen it. 
And let's just go through the list. He rolls this out because God has said so. Verse 3, by faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. Why do we believe God made the universe? You didn't see it because he said it. Why do you believe that he took that, that which was invisible and made that visible? Because he said it. You are trusting that. You're relying on that. You're banking your chips on that. Because he said it. We operate in faith because God's word has given us a creation account. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. God told Abel and Cain back in Genesis what he required. And there was one who believed his word, trusted it, and obeyed. Abel, right? That was faith. That was testimony of faith. Abel believed it and did it. He trusted what God said was right and what God said was true, and he did it. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So he gets the private rapture. We all would love to have that. So, so how was he pleasing to God? He trusted what God said, and he did it. Pleased God. He formed his life around it. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by concerning events yet unseen. What's that, the flood? Rain, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So God's word, what God said, came to Noah and said, hey, no, you haven't seen any rain. No, people think it's nuts, there's going to be a flood. But hey, I'm telling you, it's coming. And Noah spends 120 years building a boat based upon what God said, even though he hadn't seen it. I mean, he, he, didn't, he, didn't, know, he, any, any, he didn't need any, God to say anything else. He just needed God to speak. He just needed God to say and go, I'm banking my chips. I'm going to build this boat. I'm going to look at it as a loony. And, and God's word is always fulfilled. And Noah obeyed God. He trusted his word. He had faith. He trusted what God said. Now, you can just keep running through Hebrews 11, and every single person you see in this passage, they are benefited, they are praised, celebrated for their faith, and every single time, it's they obeyed God, they heard the word, they obeyed the word, and formed their life around the word. Every single one of them. You can see that. It's just the most beautiful thing as you walk through. That's what it means to live by faith. God simply told them something, and they acted on it. So Jesus, Jesus isn't asking the disciples to have bigger faith so they can create a healing. He's asking them to simply trust what he said. I said you could do this. I said you, could, I said you have my rights. I said you have my privilege. It's, it's an issue of not believing what I said. It's not an issue of you flexing your faith. And creating something that wouldn't have been. It's you leaning on my word and trusting my word. The issue is they didn't believe what he said. So here's my question to us this morning. Very simply. Do you trust his word? Period. Do you believe God? Period. Or do you 
by the lie that by not trusting him, that will somehow win out for you. That you found the magic chip to get underneath the ceiling that covers his eyes. You don't really need to listen, don't really need to respond, don't really believe what he says is true. So when he says sin will kill you, you're not really sure you believe that. Mm, I don't know. I mean, I know that you made the universe, I know that you wired me and fashioned me and are omnipresent and omniscient, and, but, but I'm not sure. I might have you up on this one. I've only lived 20 years. You've lived infinite, but I think I might know better than you, right? <laughs> I mean, think about what we, right? So I'm not sure that I trust you in that. Or my marriage. I know that you say this is how the marriage operates. This is what it's meant to be, what it's meant to display. What it, I don't know that I believe you, though. I think a little flirting is not bad. I think a little perusing the internet, looking at other lovers and past lovers, ah, it's not that bad. I mean, I don't know about that. I don't, the way you say to appropriately engage with relationship and date and court and honor, and I don't, know that, I don't know that you really meant what you said. Do you believe his word? Now, this flushes out positively and negatively. Um, because if you're a Christian, the scriptures will say you are given the Holy Spirit of God that illuminates your eyes, illuminates your minds, and then you are made aware of provisions for you that if you believe them, they're yours. Right? You'll experience that provision if you have faith that in what God said is true. So, and, and this is why this is so important because I believe we spend so much of our life as Christians chasing the things we already have. Like, I've said this a lot. So, so we cry out to God. I'll just give you, like, a list that, that I hear all the time, that I say all the time, spiritually speaking, right? Lord, I need strength, right? Well, he's going, hey, I've already told you in my word that you do have the strength of Jesus Christ himself, that his resurrected power is literally fueling strength. So if you have faith in that, if you believe that's true, you'll receive that provision. You'll experience that provision. We say, God, I need grace. Well, I've already said, I've already spoken and said my grace is sufficient for you. That you have grace in Jesus Christ that will sustain you, that will walk with you, that will. Be. So, so your faith has to be in what he said in his word. And if you believe what he said in his word, then you'll begin to experience that provision. There, there are a number of others. We say, Lord, I need love. But he's already, through his word, demonstrated and proven mind-blowing love in Jesus Christ and him crucified, right? So you're actually not believing that. You're not placing your faith in what he's already said and demonstrated, so you're not benefiting from that provision. We say other things. We say, God, I need peace. Well, he said, I, I gave you peace. And it actually surpasses your finite mind's understanding. So trust that. And then begin to experience that provision. It's an issue of believing God, of trusting God. So, so biblically, we have faith in what God has said. And in so doing, you experience that provision. You're not making some provision that wasn't there. It was always there. You didn't believe it. You didn't trust it. You didn't throw yourself on that beautiful, undeniable mound of truth. You just jump on it and swim in it and enjoy it and Throw your life's banking on it, knowing that it will lead you into deeper joy, deeper life, because you trust him. So when we're not experiencing love, peace, all these things, you're not trusting. You're not believing his word. You're believing something else. 
Now, negatively, this made me think of a text that I want to, I because I want to discuss this negatively because I think it's important. Galatians 6. Look at Galatians 6 real quick. This is what Paul writes. Sobering thought. And this all has to do with trusting God, having faith in his word and what he said. It says, do not be deceived. Because that's, that's, that's most of the issue of trusting God's word. I mean, what does the enemy do in Genesis 3? Already goes after God's word. Did he say that? Did he mean that? Is he trying to take from you, steal from you? He always goes after God's words. Don't be deceived by anything else. God is not mocked. You can't trick him. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. You can't cover him up. He's never, in the history of mankind, God's never been mocked. He's never been tricked. You're not going to be the first one to do it. Okay? He says, a man reaps what he sows. This is a law. The one who sows to please the sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. Guys, that's a law. That, that, that's... That's black and white. There's not three ways to live the Christian life. There are two. You either pursue holiness, pursue Christ, pursue trusting his word, or you pursue the flesh. You sow to the flesh. That means that's, that's all you understand as joy. That's all you understand as gratifying. But until you pursue Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ frees you from the lust of your flesh, showing there's greater love, greater joy, deeper life outside of the ceiling you know as flesh, you come out from under that, and all of a sudden you experience fullness of life and joy, caught up in all that is Christ crucified him, bringing you into union with him, and freeing you from that enslavement to sin, letting you walk in purity. You actually want those things now. You actually realize, I have the Holy Spirit in me. I trust I can be freed from that. I don't have to be enslaved to that. And you walk in life. You walk in truth. You're no longer sowing to the sinful nature. You're sowing to the spirit, which he's going to say right here. But, this is good news, if you believe God's word, if you trust him, the one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Have you ever gone out and planted apple seeds and watched a cactus sprout up? No. You haven't. That's the answer. On the Scantron, there's only one answer. Some of you are like, hmm, I'm not really sure. I'm like, seriously? We're debating this right now? How in the, we got some work to do. Okay, so, so this just shows you, if we're crazy on that, I mean, how much are we going to play with this one? And, and that's what he's saying. This is a law. If you sow to something, you reap something. If you sow to something else, you, you reap to something else. There, there, there's no, this is just a law. Do you trust God's word because he said this? Do you, do you trust that every time your finger opens the website and you indulge and view the things that were not the way God designed it, not the way God designed people to operate, humanity to operate, love to operate, do, do you trust him that that is going to destroy, decay, deform your soul? You either do or you don't. That's why Jesus takes it so seriously. Hey, you better cut out your eye. It's better to do that than have it thrown in the lake of fire, right? I mean, do, do, do you... There's so many things we could, we could say here. So, so here's my question. Where are you buying the lie that sin will win out for you? And by default, not trusting God's word. Where is that for you? Just mentally in your head. Where are you buying the lie that sin actually is going to win out for you? And we know the definition of insanity. You keep doing something that doesn't work thinking it'll work. So that's what you're doing. You're in the cul-de-sac of insanity, and you are believing that sin ultimately will eventually win out for you. 
And the reason sin will never win out for you and the reason sin will constantly lose steam is because you weren't built for sin. You were built for Jesus and his glory. You were built to find your greatest joy, your greatest satisfaction, your greatest epitome of life, of enjoyment, of pleasure in him. So if you're not, if you're banking on something else to do that, right, a false god, a, uh, another pleasure, another love, another lust, if you're trying to go after that fleshly desire, if you're thinking that thing eventually is going to win out, I know that God said this is how it works, but I don't know that I really trust him. I think this thing's better. Every time you choose sin over Jesus, it doesn't win out for you. And sometimes you're deceived, you're blinded. God in his grace will let you go for a season until you're finally awakened to the damning nature of sin where maybe you repent or maybe you're so numb and so hard and so callous that you keep going down that lane. That's terrifying. That that terrifies me. When I I sit with people in counsel and I see the hardness of the heart and I see the just, just, I don't know, just they're totally numb to Jesus and his cross and his work and there's not even a, a pulse or a want. I just say, man, turn him. I don't know what else to tell you. Like just trust him. I don't know what else to tell you. I mean, hasn't he proven that already? Just like the disciples, haven't I proven over and over and over that he's trustworthy? I mean, every time you've chosen sin, here's the thing. You know it doesn't work out for you. Deep in the bottom of your soul, you know it doesn't work out for you. And you somehow become deceived thinking God can be mocked and go, I don't really know if he is trustworthy. I don't really know that I believe him. This is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is the motivation for obedience, for trusting his word. Because a lot of us think the good news of the gospel is that we're saved from the penalty of sin, which is true. You don't have to go to hell now. That's true. Beautiful news. You're absolutely saved from the penalty of sin. But you know what I find to be great news? That that I'm saved from sin itself. Jesus in his mercy lets me wake up today and be rescued from sin that's crouching at Mike Reed's door every day. Wanting to kill his marriage, wanting to kill his ministry, wanting to kill his friendships, wanting to kill his soul, every day. He's just there. And the gospel preserves me and protects me daily from that. Saves me literally from that. God, I mean, the Holy Spirit sustains your mind to believe his word, to trust his word in in faith. You believe what he said and you bank on it. You cash your chips in there because you know that what he said is trustworthy. So you now have a new mind and a new heart. You have the Holy Spirit of God that now enables you to live like you're built. You can now actually live not entangled to sin and sowing to to the sinful nature that reaps destruction, but you can actually sow to the Spirit now because that's how you were built. It's how you're wired, and the more you experience joy, experience life and freedom in him, the more you want of it, the more you taste of it, the more you drink of it and eat of it. That's why the Psalms will say, taste and see, the Lord is good. I want to mention something here, um, a topic we don't like to talk about, so let's talk about it. The wrath of God, right? Oh, no, let's not. Easter Bunny Jesus, he's my man. Puts candy out on my lawn, eat it. The wrath of God. So there, if you just read your Bible, there are two ways the wrath of God kind of plays itself out. Now, this is so helpful to me in trusting God's word and in pursuing obedience, right? Understanding that. There are two, and you kind of got this passive wrath and active wrath, right? So if you want to look at passive wrath, you kind of go to Romans 1. 
And, and Romans 1 will outline, this is where you say, I don't trust your word. And I not only don't trust your word, I'm smarter than you. And because I'm smarter than you, I'm going to orient my life, operate my life the ways that you say I shouldn't. And here's, here's the, the terrifying thing. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead, chase it. Go after it. And you might repent and turn back to Christ. That's the hope, that eventually you'll see how destructive it is, how decaying it is, how awful it is. Or you might not. And then he basically says, at the end of all, all time, I'm going to judge you then for running from me. I told you what was right and good. I told you what was helpful. I told you how you were built to live. I told The other is his active wrath. Now, that's, you know, that's God blowing stuff up, fire, disease. Nebuchadnezzar turns into an animal. I mean, it, it's like crazy stuff. Now, I believe the majority of us are under the, the passive wrath of God. We don't really see that. But that's God waking you up. Maybe God's done that in your life. He's actively shown you wrath and that's woken you up. And see, man, I need to turn to him. I need to repent of sin. I need to see that he's good. I need to see that he's wise. So I think it's great to do a study on wrath. I think it's great on your battle for sin. It's great in seeing Galatians 6 and trusting that. Because here's what you're going to see. You're going to see there are two responses from God for sin. Hell and killing Jesus. Both are horrific. So if you want to begin to feel the weight of not trusting his word, of not believing his word, Look at the two responses from God towards sin. All right, back to the text. Let's tie all this up in a nice, neat bow and take it home. Verse 43, while they were all marveling at everything, everybody's marveling what Jesus just did. Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your hearts. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand his saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So as everyone is marveling at God's, at this miracle of Jesus and healing this boy who was just pounded and assaulted by this demon, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, hey, remember something. I'm going to be killed. All this praise you see, all this applause you see, don't let that give you false hope. Because these people that are praising me are going to yell to crucify me. Remember, I'm going to be handed over to the religious establishment, the, the scribes, the chief priests, and they are going to ultimately have me crucified. Don't forget that. Now, now, here's the thing. They don't understand that, right? Naturally. I love how we're like, I can't believe they didn't get it. Well, you're living post the cross. Easy for you. Revelation was given to you, right? These guys are going, I don't really understand. I mean, how can God kill God? I mean, how can the Messiah that came to Israel be killed by the Israel leadership? Like, that doesn't make sense, right? I mean, I don't understand why all this stuff has to happen. Interesting. Jesus conceals it from them. He doesn't give them too much information because maybe they'll flee. Maybe they'll run. Now, they ultimately do flee at times and do wag their tail. But ultimately, he's protecting them. He could have said, couldn't he? Hey, guys, here's all the gory details. Would have brought a lot of fear. They wouldn't have understood they wouldn't, it wouldn't have made sense. He protected them from the future. Now, now, here's something I want to say. This is a tremendous truth that ministered to me this week. 
do you know that it is a unbelievable act of grace and mercy to you that God does not let you know the future? You know, that's actually his kindness. That he withholds information. That he doesn't let you see your whole life, how it's going to pan out. Because he knows <laughs> how you need to live in the moment. He knows what you need for today. And he doesn't give any more. And he's going, just trust me that I'll give you the information. I'll roll out the information as you need it. Because here's what's awesome. You go to the Luke 24, they're on the road to Emmaus. What's happening? Jesus, they're post the cross. They see the resurrection. They get it all. It all makes sense. And Jesus goes, hey, remember, this is what I told you about. Remember, this is what I was talking about. And there was peace, and they understood. Are you going to just trust God that he knows what he's doing with your life, that, that, that I know you're withholding from me the future. I wish I could know the next few weeks. I wish I could get to know the next few months. I, I can't see that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you in faith, knowing that you have proven yourself over and over and over again. And you don't need to, you're withholding information because you love me, because you know either I can't handle it or you want me to have the awe and wonder and glory of when it's, when I understand it all, right? It might be a week from now, it might be a year from now, it might be 10 years from now. He's walking with you on the road to Emmaus going, hey, that's what I was talking about. You, you understand it now, right? You get it now. It makes sense. You understand why you walk through that season. Are you in a season of just total uncertainty right now? Where there's just fog and fear and anxiety, and all you want is for God to just, in, in anger, give me details. Just give me details. You know, that's his kindness that he's saying, no, not, not yet. Just keep trusting me. Just keep having faith in what I've said. You believe that all things work together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you believe it? Everything. Do you believe that? Now, good is how God means for it to be good. It will be perfectly right for your greatest joy and greatest happiness in him. Do you trust that or not? Then just keep walking, keep being faithful. Know that I'm a good God, kind God. I, I, I'm, I love my kids. I'm for my kids. And I don't give my kids more information than they need. I know what you need. You don't. Are you enjoying that from God? I was not until I read this. <laughs> and now I'm praying that I will. <laughs> and that I'll walk in that. Let's, uh, let me close with this, this, this question here and, and ask a few things. One, um, and I mean this sincerely, not sarcastically. Because <laughs> I know I'm, I'm sarcastic a lot. I mean this seriously. Have you ever been in a situation where your opinion just doesn't really matter? Where you're like either in a group where they're talking about something, you know nothing about that thing, but you're trying to like, yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, I agree, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? They're either talking about sports and you don't even watch sports or anything about the sport, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I saw who's that guy, Stephen Curry, he's uh, LeBron James' brother, right? No. I don't. You know what I mean? Like, or you're, you're, this is how insane it is. You're in the doctor's office telling him, like, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's what he needs. I don't think that's, I know you've got, like, 20 years of your doctorate, but I, I mean, I just became a parent a month ago, and I, I know what he needs, right? I mean, you ever been in a situation where your, your opinion just doesn't matter? I mean, when I had both my knees reconstructed, would it have been wise to be like, hey, hey, take that tendon and stretch it all the way up to my nose? I mean, see that one? He would have said, are you crazy? Stop. Shut up. Right? I mean, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Here, here's, have you ever thought maybe 
just maybe when it comes to God, you're a little bit in over your head. Just, just a little bit, honestly. That maybe he has your whole life figured out. That, that maybe your opinion doesn't matter that much. I'm not saying he does not long for you to ask him for things or commune with him or talk, but your opinions in judging him for how he operates. Maybe with him, you're in the deep end with no floaties as a one-month-old. Maybe. And maybe you should just say, God, I, I trust you, the, the designer, creator, sovereign author over everything that exists, over the emotions that I have, over the brain cells and blood cells and DNA cells and decision-making and future and everything else. You, you know how that all operates. So I'm going to take a step out of here and just in faith trust you. Faith, he knows what he's doing. And, and this is how it all ties to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, Faith is how we're saved. It's by grace through faith. I mean, this is like the, the doctrine of the Protestants. This is what we, we believe. And, and so what happens when God in his grace illuminates your mind to the beauties that is God, the beauties that is his holiness, his glory, the weight of your sin, you see him as holy, you realize you're not, you realize that you're a, a, an idol thief and a glory thief, you want to just be the God of your life, you want to worship yourself, you realize that you don't trust and believe sin will win out, you, you chase other things and not him, you make other things ultimate and not him, you don't believe that anything else exists more than what you want. You start seeing all of that and then you hear about the saving work of Jesus, taking your dead heart, dead mind, dead soul, and him walking by and saying, hey, I'm going to make you alive in that. I'm actually paying the penalty for you. The incarnate God is going to walk. He's going to live a perfect life for you. He's going to take on the wrath of God towards you in your sin. He's going to make your sinful life his righteous life and take your sinful life and put it on his perfect life. You see that beautiful exchange. What you do in faith, you hear a cognitive, mental, understandable, reasonable thing, and you believe it. You trust it. You say, yes, I trust that that is the only thing possible to save and ransom and rescue my sinful, wicked soul. Like, I can't even come up with other stuff. I can go to philosophy. I can go to everything else, every other type of thought and theory. Nothing else will cure or fix what's wrong and broken with me and the universe. So in faith, because you understand it, you trust it. And you're saved. That's how you're saved. By trusting his word, what he said about Jesus and his person and work. A beautiful, beautiful thing. And then, because you believe it, your life is formed by it. You form your life around it. Now you read Galatians 6 and you go, yeah. Yeah, I know I'm no longer enslaved to that. I've seen the decay. I've seen the destruction. I want out from that. I'm going to sow to the Spirit. You know, I'm sure there's a ton of us in the room um, that land all over the map. Some of us, we've grown up in church our whole life, and so we thought by obeying all the rules and doing the right things that we don't need God anymore. There's a, then you got the other people that, man, in pride, you break all the rules. Right? And, and you love that you do it. Then some of you are hybrid of that. You show up Sunday. You're awesome on Sunday. It's the only day God's awake. He looks down. There you are. And then you live like hell the rest of the week. 
Others of you, you're dragged here by a friend. You're like, I don't even know why I'm here. Just listen to some crazy man. He looks like he's, I don't know, 15, but he's got a white goatee. I don't know what's happening here, what's being talked about here, but I'm not sure I believe this, agree with this, know this. Listen, Hebrews 1 says we have hope in the things unseen, assurance. There's only one thing we have hope in and assurance in, that's Christ and him crucified. That is utter certainty, utter sureness, utter joy, and the thing that we bank our life on and trust in. So no matter where you land on the map, no matter where you swim in the waters, that's what we are putting our faith in. Not how clean we are, not how cute we look, not in him alone. His perfect life, his righteous life, the wrath-absorbing God-man that came, taught, healed, cast out demons, ultimately went to the cross for sin, for redemption, for rescuing for life, for ultimate joy in his name. And we throw ourselves on that and say, that's all I have. It's all of God is Jesus. Like He's the hope. He's the assurance in my soul. He's what I'm throwing my chips in on. And he has proven himself over and over and over. Let's ask him for help to do that. Because as we leave this room, the one place we want to put our trust is in Christ, him crucified, and him risen. So where the space is that you're not doing that. Because if it is there, then we sow to the things of the Spirit. Some of you maybe say, the Scriptures will say that, that, that faith is a gift from God. Maybe say, God, I, give me the faith to believe. Give me the faith to trust the, the amazing work of the person of Jesus Christ. Help me to place my chips, place my trust, place my reliance on the fact that he did that, and that that is sufficient for me. That was sufficient for sin, sufficient for the debt that I owed, sufficient for the righteous life required, sufficient for the blood that was supposed to be shed, sufficient for the wrath of God to be appeased for by something. Help me to trust that today. Help me to have faith to sow to the spirit and not to the flesh. God, thank you that we will take the Lord's Supper where we remember his body broken, bloodshed that accomplished what was unaccomplishable outside of him. Sinful, broken men and women standing before a holy, righteous God saying, I am in desperate need. I need someone to stand in my place and be my champion. And Jesus did it. Help us to believe that. Trust that. Rely on that. Help us to fight sin by believing your word, trusting your word. In the power of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.